It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Ismail Hanaya once said, Some people think that the truth can be hidden with a little cover-up and decoration. But as time goes by, what is true is revealed, and what is fake fades away. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Jonathan, oh, well, what's the uh, topic for today? What are we talking about? What are we talking about? Well, this is part two of a multi-part series, and our question is, has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? Our theme text is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, so has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood, part two, coming up in today's podcast. Part of finding the truth of Bible scripture is knowing what doesn't belong in the Bible. So how do you determine what should be taken out? We're going to address that in about 15 minutes. What about scriptures that are genuine parts of the Bible but have been translated incorrectly? How do we know what the right translation is without being biased? Well, We'll get to that in about 30 minutes, and how do we handle it when we're looking at the correct translation of genuine scriptural content, but we still come to different conclusions? Find out how in about 45 minutes, but first, first let's set the stage. In part one of our series, we examined the evidence that the Bible is an historically validated document. Ancient manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrate that what we have today in scripture is amazingly faithful to the original. We ended that conversation by reviewing modern translations and the question of what are considered the most accurate translations into English. Today, our trek of discovery continues with a review of biblical texts that have significant rendering differences from one translation to the next. Now look, this can be a hard study and may and probably will provoke both emotional and intellectual disagreements. Our single goal here is to understand the will and the mind of our holy God as we look at his holy word. So, Jonathan, in order to do this, we had to bring our dear friend and brother in Christ, David Stein, back with us. David, it's good to have you back. Rick and Jonathan, it's always a privilege uh, that I enjoy very, very much being uh, with both of you. Uh, You've done uh, such a faithful job over decades now. And uh, the few times that I've been has always been a blessing to me. So uh, um, as I mentioned last week, I'm an elder in the Allentown Bible Students Church and uh, have been a Bible student since my teens. Uh, It is interesting that some of the subjects we've covered through the years have been more technical and scientific, and and that's because of my background as an electrical engineer. Uh, All of these things come together to make Bible study just wonderful and uh, always opening up something new for me. Good. Again, good to have you back. I think a good place to begin is with the question, 
Does having so many translations help or hinder our search for truth? Yeah, you know, it's like you can almost have too much of a good thing. And, you know, it's like if, if you have too many Hershey's Kisses, you know, it's, it's good to have a lot of them, but, you know, too much is too many. Are there too many? Okay. Well, first let's look at Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise guidance you will wage war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. All right. In abundance of counselors, there is victory. David? Well, you know, this is a a very interesting and important part of our Christian walk, recognizing that we can't do it by ourselves. It is always a good thing to get the thoughts and perspectives of others, and we need it. I mean, doesn't Paul say in one place, every joint supplieth? So we need that because we've all got blind spots, and it's only by consulting other Christians that we stay on the path of truth better. So when you come to a verse that's either unclear or challenging, uh, having available a lot of different translations will help you see the breadth of meaning that you can get from a verse. Now, of course, the opinions of Bible students and scholars, they might be opinionated or biased themselves, but seeing a multitude of these gives us a good overall and comprehensive view of what the Scripture means. So um, one of our main objectives as Bible students, and I think this is just a very important thing, is to harmonize every verse of Scripture. If we believe the Bible is inspired, then we want every verse of Scripture to harmonize with every other. And that's one of the goals that we have when we study verses and and study mistranslations, uh, such as we're considering this evening. Okay, so we do. We want to get the harmony of all Scriptures in place, and that's such an important part of this. But here's the thing. What if you're not proficient in all these languages. Look, I, I speak English. Some, some people think maybe okay. Other people think like, oh, come on, Rick, really? <laughs> but, you know, I can't, even, I can't even differentiate between Greek and Hebrew letters, never mind speak the languages. So, David, what about if we're not proficient in these languages? How do you, how do you handle this? Well, Rick, I think you're among most of us that are not Greek or Hebrew scholars. Now, when you go back in the past, this was a very much of an impediment to people that wanted to study the Bible. They were absolutely dependent upon those who were the experts, and they were relatively few in times past. But it's no longer true today. Uh, We have many, many helps to us that reflect Uh, insightful interpretations, insightful knowledge uh, from scholars. And even though we can't speak the languages, these helps will help us to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and help us to discern. In other words, it sort of gives us the gift of tongues now in the modern age, you know, without, uh, as as a logical help to our studies. Okay, and and actually, we've got four examples, David, that you laid out for us. And Jonathan, let's go through those four examples. One, and we've talked about, uh, especially this first example, many times on Christian Questions, it's the Strong's Concordance. Jonathan, just a little bit about that. Yeah, this is the most important and most used Bible study tool in the English-speaking world. It was published by James Strong in 1890. It indexes every word in the King James Version of the Bible, giving the Greek or Hebrew root and a definition and usage of the word. David, thoughts on that? Well, as Jonathan mentioned, it's the most used, but for us as English speakers, I think it is the most useful tool that we have. We can pick any subject in Scripture, you know, be it kingdom, death, grave. I mean, take your choice. Now you go to Strong's, and you look at where that word is used in every place in Scripture. You know, what could be simpler than that? And so we can create a list of what the Scripture says on a given subject. 
And that's just a wonderful thing to do. Now, Strong gives definitions, which by and large are very good. He's not the final word, but he's very much uh, authoritative. And this is just an, a, a, a tool that a non-Hebrew or Greek-speaking Bible student cannot be without. I agree. And in my case, something to remember when, when I use the Strong's Concordance, the italicized words are the most important because they are the word-for-word -word meaning. Beyond that, it's interpretive. So we need to be careful when we use it. Right, right. And, and you have to understand how it's constructed. So you get a little bit of background on that, but it really is an awesome tool. And Jonathan, we have used, we use Strong's Concordance with our Christian Questions podcast for almost, almost every single episode. We're You're referring right. to it somewhere or other. Okay, so that's the first. That's a very big and important tool. This is to help us understand the authenticity of Scripture. The next, Jonathan, let's, let's touch on is Greek and Hebrew interlinear Bibles. A line of biblical text is given with the word-by-word -word English translation, so we see not only a translation, but the flow of the sentences. There is a little more of a challenge in Hebrew since it is read right to left. And to uh, see the charts that David is going to be speaking on in this episode, go to CQ Rewind show notes, and you can find that at christianquestions.com. All right, good. So, David, uh, let's go to last week's episode. We talked about caperberries, and just a review of what does that have to do with this Greek and Hebrew use of inter interlinear Bibles? Well, if you look at that verse, and in, it's in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 5. Again, we discussed it last week. And when you read the word for word, this, this uh, idea or this thing of, called a caperberry comes up. And yet, when you read many of the Bible translations, it doesn't talk about caperberries at all. It's, it talks about desire failing. So what does that mean? Well, the desire shall fail is what is meant. But when you see the caperberry and the interlinear, now you can start to do a little Bible interpretation yourself. You look up caperberry, and you find out it was an appetizer. And you say, oh, well, so it's saying that ap appetite that goes away. And then you look at the other Bible translations that don't use the word caperberry, and you confirm, well, that's right. This is, not, this, is, this is more of an interpretation, but it's a correct one. To stay with the literal reading is always better, and being having an uh, interlinear like that is, uh, is helpful. Okay, so caperberries are going to help us to become very capable um, in terms oh. of... <laughs> sorry, I try hard, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Okay, let's, David, touch on a Greek interlinear uh, translation for Galatians 5.1, just as an example of the, the value of these interlinear translations. Well, as Jonathan mentioned, there is a Hebrew interlinears and Greek interlinears. And, and as he also mentioned, Hebrew is a little challenging because it reads from right to left. I don't know how many uh, of our Christians in this country realize that Hebrew is backwards from English. But when you get a Hebrew interlinear, that, that problem is, uh, is right in your face right away. Uh, not a big problem, but you just have to change. When you go to Greek, Greek, like English, reads from left to right. And so when you read it, it's, it's almost like reading a, a sentence. Now, I, I'll say one thing about uh, word order in different languages. If anybody has learned uh, a foreign language, you know that sometimes the, the order we put words in in English is different in French or German or Polish. And in fact, when those fo uh, folks learn English, sometimes you're, you're confused by their word order because they're using the, the old one. So 
the same way with Greek. When you go into the Greek interlinear, uh, sometimes the word order is a little bit weird, uh, at least for English speaking, but you read it and you understand it. Now, we chose this one because it's going to come up in our next point when we talk about another tool that we can use. Specifically, it's about the term eleutheria, which means freedom or liberty. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that in our next next tool. The next tool, we've talked about interlinear translations, the Strong's Concordance. The next tool, Jonathan, is Vine's Expository Dictionary. What is this? This is helpful when you need a bit more information regarding the meaning and uses of biblical words. Vine goes much deeper into word use, sometimes referring to usage and examples outside of the Bible. On occasion, he gives a historical use of the word that illustrates how appropriately it was used. So, David, bring us to just an example from Vines, and actually, actually in relation to Galatians 5.1. Okay, you know, we use the term in English, nuance. There's a nuance. That, that is, there's a little bit additional meaning to the word we're using. And one of the things that Vines does that uh, very frequently, not with every word, but very frequently, has these nuances. For example, we mentioned that the word eleutheria in the Greek means freedom or liberty. Now, Paul's talking about having freedom in Christ. Well, well that's great. But what Vine does is says, hey, there's something in this word that's even more interesting. And he says it, it was used in ancient Greek times that if you were the owner of a slave and you loved that slave, he was a really great slave and you wanted to reward him with freedom, you would go down to the local temple and you would perform an act called manumission. And manumission means that you would sell that slave to the local God. You'd throw some money in the treasury. Now the slave became the property of that God. He got a little document that was written up and it was written up with this, for freedom. That meant that that guy could never be enslaved again. He was the property of a God. So that's the idea of the freedom that Paul is talking about, that when we give our lives to our God, we are manumitted from the slavery of this world. This is another picture of consecration. And this is where Vines comes up with these beautiful little historical nuances that really help us to understand uh, what Paul is saying a little bit more deeply. So it's it's kind of like adding salt to your eggs. It just brings out the flavor of the word, and that's really what we want to understand, is what do they really mean by it? Okay, our fourth tool that helps us in this Bible study to understand the words and the phrases and, and the meaning of the word is actual commentaries. Jonathan, a little bit on commentaries. In general, we want to be a little wary of commentaries because of the doctrinal slant they, by definition, provide. Opinion and commentary can easily be biased, but they can at times be helpful when they do a brief word study when considering certain verses. They are also helpful when they give us historical perspective on ancient traditions, history, and lifestyle. So David, just very briefly, a little bit on content commentaries. Well, commentaries can be useful in that they, they add color to uh, what we're reading about. But uh, as Jonathan indicated, we have to be so very, care very careful. By definition, a commentary is somebody's opinion about what verses mean. Now, sometimes that's helpful. If you read a verse and you don't have a clue, you can go to commentary and get an idea. But remember, it is that one person's perspective on it. And that's where we have to be a little bit careful. Uh, is their perspective uh, in accord with other areas of truth and scripture that we, we have to be a, a little bit circumspect about this 
and uh, read it with, with with perhaps a bit of skepticism. But they can be very helpful as long as we have that note of caution. So all of these tools need to be used in conjunction with one another, and we need to know that one tool isn't going to just open up all the doors for us. That's part of what becoming a real true student of the Bible is all about. So even though we're ignorant of ancient Bible languages, we're not locked out of understanding their meaning. With all these tools available, shouldn't we all be able to grasp the intended meaning of God's Word? Our team of volunteers are accomplishing amazing work every week as we release new audio, video, and web content, helping create the Christian Questions Multimedia Ministry. There's several ways you can get more involved in our not-for-profit mission. Click on Support CQ in our main menu on ChristianQuestions.com. In an ideal world where each and every one of us did not have predetermined viewpoints on pretty much everything, we could theoretically have agreement. Well, our world is sinful and we all carry inherent bias pertaining to our world and our scriptural views. So therefore, today we're going to focus on examining several scriptures, not to learn or unlearn any specific doctrine, but to simply isolate, to understand the meaning of of those scriptures. So folks, as we go through things, you're going to say, what, what, are they, what, are they, what are they hinting at? What we're hinting at is let's get to the meaning of the scripture and build our faith on the actual meaning of these scriptures. Well, Rick and David, this segment will focus on some spurious verses. What does it mean that a verse is spurious? David, go ahead. Well, spurious verses are verses that we find in our Bible that have been added at a later time. In other words, they weren't in the original manuscript. Someone else has added to them. Okay, so something that was added but didn't belong originally. Now you say, wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me my Bible may have some of those? Listen in and let's and get your Bibles because this, this is important. We're going to start with one uh, that is actually well known in terms of this. In, and again, for some of us, this may be brand new, but listen carefully and listen to the proof and so forth behind it. Jonathan, let's read 1 John 5, 7 through 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Okay, you have those verses, specifically John verse 7, and the words in earth in John verse 8. Now let's read these verses from two other translations, and then David, let's get a couple of comments from you, and let's go back to our friend and brother Jim Parkinson uh, for, for his perspective. So Jonathan, 1 John 5, 7 through 8, you read it from the King James Version, now the New American Standard Bible. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Okay, it's much shorter, much more concise. At 1 John 5, 7, and 8 from New International Version. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. David, comments before we go to Jim Parkinson. Well, you can see the difference between the King James Version and these other two. There are huge phrases that are missing from it. And again, remember our definition of what is spurious. It's something that has been added. So these later translations have recognized that these are added pieces that don't belong in the scriptures, and therefore they left them out. 
Okay, so the specific part that we're talking about that's added is there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That whole phrase we're suggesting, according to manuscripts, has been added. Let's go back to Jim Parkinson. He is, if you heard part one, he is really a, a, a wonderful authority on these things. He's a fellow student of Scripture, has actually worked on a translation of the Bible for the last 50 years or so, and has, has a lot of knowledge for Greek and Hebrew. Let's hear what he says on this verse. 1 John 5, 7, and 8 on the three heavenly witnesses. There are only nine manuscripts that have the extra part there, and they come in seven different forms, whereas there's 500 manuscripts that exclude those words. Today, our Bibles don't include the extra words. So it's another example of of a spurious scripture. Again, we are wanting to know what the Bible teaches, as you emphasized at the beginning. We need to arrange our understanding of Scripture in accord with what the Bible says. And so it's very important to know if it says something that is not in the original that we need to remove it. By the way, uh, just as a little uh, background, uh, among Bible scholars, they use two terms to describe uh, understanding Scripture. They use eisegesis and exegesis. These are both terms that come from the Greek. But exegesis means that you look at the Scripture and you try to determine what it means. Eisegesis says you have something in mind and you try to read it into the Scripture. Clearly, exegesis is what you want to do as a Bible student. You want to, as much as possible, draw from the Scriptures to get your ideas of what it's teaching rather than preconceived notions reading into them. Interesting point, and very, very valuable as we go through several of these scriptures in in today's podcast. So this one is very simple. Jim said only nine manuscripts exist with these added words in. There are over 500 without them. So this one's a little simple to to kind of identify. Let's go to another one. This this one causes all kinds of interesting uh, results by being there. Mark chapter 16, verse 18. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall not recover. So now, Jonathan, before you do a comment uh, on that, this verse is very dramatic. There's a lot of drama shown here. Go ahead. Well, this single verse has spawned a Christian cult started in 1910 by George Went Hensley, where snake handling is part of their worship. He read the verse and decided that Jesus ordered him to show his faith by handling snakes, although it was many years later he eventually died of a snake bite. David, thoughts? Well, this is an example of a a scripture that can can spawn something like this cult. Now, it's not a big cult, and it existed basically in Kentucky and Tennessee. But uh, they read it, and they said, well, this must be what Jesus wants us to do. We demonstrate our faith. And say they start handling the snakes, and of course the uh, the outcome is many many of these that have pursued this have died of of snake bites. So the question is, well, did Jesus really say that? Right, and that's really what we want to get to. So let's go back to Jim Parkinson, get a short comment from him, and then D- David, let's go back to this verse, and then actually to the context of this verse as well. Mark 16, 18 was a problem. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall in no wise hurt them. The earliest evidence is that Mark didn't write these words, though. They likely were added thinking that Mark ended the book too abruptly. 
so David, you said exegesis and in in. in, in Isogesis. Isogesis. I, kept, I kept thinking yep. indigestion, but you know. <laughs> but see, what we do is when we plant an idea into Scripture, we're actually creating scriptural indigestion. Now, think about this for a second. And the idea, Jim suggests that, okay, they. it, it seems like Mark ended the book too abruptly, so we need to fix that. We need to, to, to sort of feather it out. We can't do that with Scripture. We just can't do that. So now, isn't there a question— about actually in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 as well? Yes, in, in some of the oldest uh, texts, the book of Mark ends at verse 8, and it seems to end abruptly. There seems to be no conclusion. And so there have been those in times past that thought, well, maybe there's something more involved. And so verses 9 to 20 are additions. Now, let's just make it very plain that this is a question of whether or not there are additions or whether or not they are part of the original. Uh, it is not so clear. You know, back in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, that was non-controversial. It doesn't belong there. Right. In this case, there's a little bit more uh, a question about it. There are certainly reasons to reject verse 18 because that just seems so outlandish and there was no evidence in early uh, uh, Christian history that they did the type of thing of snake handlings and drinking poisons and whatnot as came up in the 20th century. But the other verses, other than verse 18, they are not in, in contrast or in opposition to other verses in Scripture. So they could be accepted. Now, that's the reason when you look at different verses in Scripture, you find that most Bibles will stop at verse 8, and then they will give a little footnote or something from verses 9 to 12 and say, you know, we're including this, but we're not sure whether it should be uh, part of this or not. There's evidence that it shouldn't, but there are some old script, Old Testament scriptures and old manuscripts. I'm saying not old Testament, old manuscripts that include it. So this is this one's a little bit uh, more uh, uncertain. However, in looking at the the total evidence, most Bible translators come down on the side that it shouldn't be part of what Mark wrote. Okay, and and actually, let, let's go through very very quickly. Let's go through five basic reasons that uh, translators come down on the side that these verses, verses 9 through 20 uh, in Mark chapter 16, do, do, not, do not belong, should not belong in, in the original document. David, what is the first reason? Reason number one is these verses are lacking in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, as well as lacking in important old Latin, Syriac, Armenian, and Ethiopic manuscripts. So they're lacking in some of the oldest manuscripts. Okay, and that's a big deal. We, we discussed that last week, and please listen to part one, and, and so part two can flow along with it. Jonathan, what's the second reason? Some of the ancient church fathers reveal no knowledge of these verses, including Clement and Origen. The, reading the uh, ancient church fathers in the first, second, third centuries uh, is useful because they quote Scripture. And sometimes they quote scripture very familiar to us. Other times they quote scripture and wait, it's a little different. And this is one case that these two church fathers, when they quoted Mark, they left that section out entirely, which means was it there when they were there? Probably not. Okay, that's that's interesting. David, what's the third point? Well, many of the manuscripts that do have it uh, put a, a mark on it, indicating a suspicion that it may be a spurious addition to the to the text. Yeah, you so mentioned even that, the yeah. copyists... Even the copyists that were carrying it, they were skeptical about it. Okay. D uh, Jonathan, fourth, fourth reason. 
This longer ending of Mark comes in four different varieties. David, that's kind of interesting. Well, yeah, take your pick. I mean, uh, if it was if it was either A or B, and you'd say, all right, well, there's more evidence for A, but B is out here. But it's A or B1, B2, B3. There are variations on that. And the fact of the variations throws a little more suspicion on whether it should be included or not. So we're piling up evidence in a lot of different areas. What's the fifth point, David? Well, in scholars, when they read this part, it seems like it's not the same style. Yeah, Mark does stop very quickly at verse 8. But when you read verse 9, the words that are used, the style, the vocabulary, don't seem to match the rest of Mark's gospel. Now, this is a subjective evaluation, but it is an important evaluation as well. So there's a lot of different reasons. Bottom line, good reasons to reject the entire section as spurious, because there's a lot of different points that tend to add up. Okay, Let's go through a, one other uh, scripture, uh, for this segment anyway, that we look at as having a portion of scripture that is not belonging, that is what we call spurious. And Jonathan, let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Okay. Well, the the section here that is suspicious is that phrase or that sentence, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the one that we're wondering that we suspect is spurious. Okay, so let me read the verses four through six, okay, just as it is with this extra piece. And then, so it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the after the thousand years were ended, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. So, David, just by reading that, there's, it sounds like it's confusing. Well, it, th- you have that section there, the first part of verse 5, that just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, just think about it logically. Verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. It's talking about the church. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years ended. Well, who's that? And then the second part, this is the first resurrection. Yeah, which? What's the, what's the first resurrection? Yeah. And then six, blessed are the holy of those that are in the first resurrection. Now contrast this if you take that piece out. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. It runs very, very smoothly. Yeah, so just the flow as you read it, you say, well, this, this does not seem normal. And, and so this is important also. So, but you can't just say, well, it doesn't flow, so it doesn't belong. Okay, so let's go a little bit further. Let's go back to uh, our brother in Christ, Jim Parkinson, who's done so much work on these things and get his perspective on Revelation 20, verse 5. Revelation 20, verse 5. The first sentence is a later edition, likely in the 4th century. Cursorily, it looks like the scribe's eye accidentally skipped from 1,000 years in verse 4 to the same at the end of the first sentence in 5. But there are five ways to compare an earlier form of this verse with the later form in the manuscripts. And in all five, it is the earlier form that omits the sentence. After all, the sentence would say that the first resurrection is the absence of a resurrection. Yeah, so he's he's saying not only does it not make sense in terms of manuscripts, but it doesn't make sense in terms of pure logic. So what what's what's the manuscript evidence for this text as spurious? David, there's basically five points, and let's see if we can go through them kind of quickly here. 
Yeah, and Rick, you're right. I mean, the, the subjective evidence is, is pretty compelling, but the manuscript evidence is the most important thing in determining whether it's spurious. All right, number one, these words are not found in the Sinaitic or the Syriac. These are among the oldest and most widely respected manuscripts that we have. Two, about 40% of the available manuscripts of Revelation don't have these words. That's, that's four out of 10. So that's, again, raises a question mark. Three, 50% of the manuscripts from the 4th to the 13th century do not have it. Again, missing from a lot. Four, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, commentary manuscript by Victorinius of Petau, this is from 300 AD, does not include these words. This is another case where we, we have some writings of an early church father, and he omits it, therefore indicating it shouldn't be there. And five, in the manuscripts where it is included, we have this variation again. Remember we saw that in, in Mark. Yeah. It's same way here, that uh, it's not A or B, it's A or B1, B2, B3, and those variations raise a question as of its authenticity. So we have to be careful when there are, and again, the average person isn't going to know this. That's why we have to look into how these things come to be and look at those who do understand the languages so we can get a sense of what belongs and what doesn't. There's too much variation for this to have authenticity, and because of that, you look at it and say, well, it doesn't make sense anyway. You can do the doesn't make sense, but it has to come after there's too much variation in manuscripts for it to actually really fit. We've got some other commentary we don't have time for. Uh, uh, Show notes, go to uh, Christian Questions show notes uh, at the website, christianquestions.com, to get more on this. Some really good commentary from D.D. Wedden on this particular uh, scripture of Revelation 20, verse 5. So, you know what? This can be overwhelming. Thank God we have such a vast library of ancient manuscripts to rely upon. What about scriptures that do belong in the Bible? How do we understand their real meaning? What's up, everybody? It's your CQ voiceover guy, reminding you we also want to talk to you before and after the podcast. Send us a message at ChristianQuestions.com for any and all feedback, or message us on our social media channels. Have a topic idea or just questions about what we're talking about? Reach out at ChristianQuestions.com. So now we're going to shift our attention to the translations of some scriptures that the original text shows us are misleading. These verses belong in the Bible, but they're easily and often misrepresented. So here again, again, the same fundamental principle applies. Focus on examining scriptures, not to learn or unlearn any doctrine. That's what we're doing here today. We're focusing on on specific scriptures to not learn or unlearn doctrine, but to simply isolate what do the scriptures actually mean? And before we get into this next scripture, David, and we're going to spend this entire segment on this next scripture, there's a question that, that came to us that's really important. You know, we've been talking in part one, we talked about the, 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 the whole Bible being so important to us as Christians now here at this time. Well, what about those faithful who were, were Christians before the printing press, before common distribution, basically the first, you know, the early stages of the Christian church. They didn't have what we have. How could they have been faithful if we have to be so diligent with what we have, putting all this stuff together? 
Well, if we start with the first century when the apostles and disciples of Jesus who actually walked and uh, were taught by him were on the scene, the uh, the lack of having a Bible was more than made up uh, uh, with by the presence of those individuals. In addition, you may remember that the Heavenly Father gave his Holy Spirit so that there were miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Uh, these Both of these things combined to provide all the basis of faith that those that, that uh, lived at that time needed to be faithful unto death. Now, after the apostles and disciples died at the end of the first century, now we have for the first time the scriptures being complete, and now they become available. And, you know, you can imagine how it, how it would work. Uh, Rick, you are a member of the uh, the New Haven Bible students. I'm a member of the Allentown Bible students. If we both lived back in the, in the first century, and the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to our our uh, our church, uh, and you heard about it, you'd say, David, can, can you make a copy and send it to me? Yeah. And that's how these these uh, epistles of of the apostles and the gospels were spread about. And that's how they came to be uh, the property in, of many, many of the churches. Now, not all of the early churches had every one, but by the end of the first century, they were all available and they began to be di distributed. Once you have that, now you have a basis for faith. Now, to be sure, during the Dark Ages, and they didn't call it the Dark Ages for nothing, it was very difficult because the Bible was not so much available. It was very, very lean at that time. Yet the Heavenly Father, and this is an important uh, principle for us at all days, including today, the Heavenly Father only makes us responsible for what we know of the truth. And so they were lacking a lot of truth in the Middle Ages, but they weren't responsible for it. The truth that was present, they were. And so today, you know, all of us have different levels of understanding, but we are responsible for what we can know and what we can do, not for what we can't know and can't do. Well said. And so we need to work at the responsibility that's been placed before us. We have immense knowledge we're responsible to try to make use of it as best as we can. Okay, so Jonathan, uh, on to a scripture, uh, again, a, a very, really very, very dramatic mistranslation, and it's very subtle, but it's very dramatic. Jonathan, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, from the King James Version. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, what does the core teaching of this text look like in this translation, and what is the core teaching of this text in actuality? David? Well, Rick, this has got to be, in my personal opinion, one of the most egregious uh, translations or mistranslations within the King James Bible, because the actual Greek says the opposite of the King James rendering. Uh, looking at the Greek text, and again, in Rewind, you'll be able to see a little interlinear box here, which I'm reading from. But in the Greek interleader, it says, who in a form of God existing, not something to be grasped, considering to be considered to be equal with God. There's that word order problem again that we mentioned earlier. But the idea here is that he was existing in the form of God, but wasn't grasping out to get an equality. Okay. So when you say that, because it, it, the way it reads in King James, it said, you know, it didn't think it robbery to be equal to God. It's, it's like it was, it was okay, you're supposed to be. But the, what you're saying is the actual meaning is he thought it was robbery to be equal with God. It's a completely, talking about Jesus, completely different viewpoint. Let's look, Jonathan, what's my favorite word? 
context, Rick. Let's look at the context, because it helps us to understand this verse. So David, uh, Jonathan and I will go through the context. You can interject where you'd like to, or just simply sum up. But the immediate context of this verse, Philippians 2.6, reveals the contradiction of this mistranslation that we're putting on the table from the King James Version. The context begins with our responsibility to humility. Now, follow how Paul unfolds the reasoning. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to go verses 3 through 9, but Jonathan, obviously I'm going to interrupt you a lot. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not to every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. See, it's all about humility. So now the context continues with Jesus as our primary example of the humility that we are supposed to strive for, according to what Paul just wrote. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, that's the attention getter. This mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what, what, does, it, what does he say? Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, now that's the translation that we're saying doesn't belong. Dave, did you want to add something right there? Yeah, and, and you can ask a simple question. Is that the mind we should have, that we should not think it robbery to be equal with God? Is right. that the mind that we should have? Well, right, right. Obviously, no, the way this is translated. So it, it doesn't go along with what came before. But what about how it describes Jesus after that one verse? Now, this is, that's, that was the verse in question. Let's look at verses 7 through 8 and see how Paul describes what he just said and see which translation actually fits. Go ahead, Jonathan. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see the incredible humility that is described as Jesus making himself of no reputation. You got this obvious lowliness that Jesus brought upon himself and being found in fashion as a man humbled himself. You can't, it's clear that this is showing us great humility. Now, verse nine, okay, Dave, before verse nine, go ahead. Yeah, real quick on that one verse there, it says that uh, he, he made himself of no reputation. The Greek is even stronger there. It says he poured himself out. He emptied himself. He made himself as nothing. And so that is the humility that Jesus set as an example for us. So you can see this context is powerful in showing this verse it doesn't mean that he's, he's being equal with God, but on the contrary, and in verse 9, shows what God does to reward this incredible humility and service and sacrifice. Jonathan, what is it? Wherefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. So, David, when we look at the context, it's all about humility, and the idea of this verse actually reading uh, that who, who, who existing in the, in the form of God thought it robbery to be equal with God makes so much more sense. Go ahead. You can expand on that however you'd like. That last verse there, too, that God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that says that he didn't have this name that was above every name but it was right. given to him because of his humility, his sacrifice, and his faithfulness that he was able to get it. 
Okay, so now the the idea of being in the in the in the in the image of God or in the form of God. What what, what about that? Just just a couple of comments on that, David. Well, it, he says there in that verse that we're considering that uh, existing in a form or the form of God, uh, and what does he mean by that? Well, Paul explains that elsewhere in Colossians one fifteen. He says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So that's the form of God he was in the image. And he reinforces it again earlier uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul's very explaining very, very clearly what the form of God is about. He's God's son, just as a, a son is the image of his father, uh, and he's the form of his father too. So too with Jesus, even more so, because that that uh, unity between uh, uh, God, Jehovah God, and His Son Jesus is just so complete as it's almost inexplicable in earthly terms. Okay, so you've got this sense of being being there to serve God and through the humility that we were we were looking at and talking about. Okay, so um, you know, David, in our in our previous discussion, you talked about one little word in the King James Version that's there, that if you take that little word out, it, it totally changes things. Just a little bit of commentary on that and what actually belongs and what doesn't belong. Yeah, again, we're, we're quoting from the King James Version of this verse. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's mm. what it says. And when you, when you just read it by itself, you get a, a certain idea. But that word it does not appear in the Greek, in any Greek manuscript. It is entirely added. Now, notice how the meaning changes if I take that word out. Let me read the, the original again. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or thought not robbery to be equal with God. You see how dramatically that changes the meaning? In one case, there's an implication of equality. In the other case, it says that there is no equality and there's no thought to gain that equality. So, and, and again, what you're saying is that the word it doesn't, is not in the original manuscripts. Correct. Okay, so folks, you know, you look at this verse and you say, okay, so what is it really teaching us? It's teaching us about the humility of Christ. Look at the context. It's showing us how he became, he said, you know, as he was in the image of God, in the form of God, he also was in the form of man. It shows us incredible, like you said, pouring out of that spirit nature to become human. Why? So he could be the ransom price for all mankind. What a powerful lesson. So, again, let's look at what do the manuscripts tell us the verse says. Can you look at the verse and say, I can appreciate what the manuscripts tell us and what the context verifies? Now, not only that, but there are several, several other translations that support this. We're only going to read uh, two of them. We, we've got five of them listed again. Go to the show notes at christianquestions.com to, to see more on this. But Jonathan, let's go to the New uh, American Bible and listen, folks, listen carefully to the way the translation is worded here. Your attitude must be that of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. David, that does change things a lot, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it's very clear. And remember at the, at the start of the segment, we we're talking about the value of translations uh, to, to look at different ways of looking at it. You know, we're making a point here that's different than perhaps some others. 
But we have other authorities, other Bible translators that see it the same way. Yeah, so it's not something to say, well, it's convenient for me to have it this way. We are not trying to give scriptural indigestion. <laughs> what we're trying to do is understand the scriptures as they are supposed to be represented by going to as they were originally uh, written. Uh, go to the Goodspeed translation too, Jonathan. Have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he possessed the nature of God, he did not grasp at equality with God. So, David, when you look at this, we've got several other translations listed here. We're not going to take the time to read them now. Just wrap this up for us. Well, the, the conclusion is inescapable. This verse in the King James is very poorly translated, and as a result, completely hides the true meaning of Jesus' humble journey as a man in the ransom for all. And again, I cannot stress to you enough, folks, the idea of his humble journey, we cannot underestimate the power of his humility in doing what he did. It is, it is remarkable. Let's take these things as they are, are shown to us uh, in, in their authentic, authentic form. See, understanding, understanding authentic scriptural meaning is challenging, and it places the burden of upholding truth upon us. What should we do with scriptures that have many manuscripts that disagree on specific words? Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode, follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes, and for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation. You know, we, we want to be accurate with words, and we'll continue to be open and honest with challenges. When such a dilemma may arise, our thought process should focus on authenticity first. And if that's still unsure, the next question should be, well, is there a difference in teaching if it goes one way or the other? So what we're suggesting is it, it's not always cut and dry. Okay, so let's go to an example of a scripture that is not necessarily cut and dry. So, Jonathan, we're going to read First John. I'm sorry, John chapter one, verse eighteen, first from the New American Standard Bible. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Okay, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now let's read the exact same verse, John one eighteen, from the King James version. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So, David, is the correct translation God or Son? Which is it? Jonathan, that's a good question. This is one of those areas where we may not be able to answer the question definitively because the Greek texts vary. Uh, there are good reasons for believing that the only begotten God might be right because it occurs in a number of uh, early Greek manuscripts, although all of the ones that occur are what, what are called the Alexandrian type. But virtually every other reading of the textual traditions, including Western, Byzantine, Caesarean, and secondary Alexandrian texts, reads quios, which is the Greek word for son. Okay, so wait, now, wait, Dave, before you go further. So what you're saying is that uh, the idea of the only begotten God is is in a lot of manuscripts, but it's in mainly one type of manuscript. Is that kind of where you're, where you're going with that? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah okay. That, that's, that's right. Okay. And, you know, and just to add maybe a little bit more, uh, departing from our program notes a little bit, the word huios 
uh, in the Greek uh, is is just a, a couple of of, uh, of of letters there, and it, it can be seen that certain um, smudging of those letters and whatnot could come up with a uh, a shortened form of theos. Interesting. That's that's one of the reasons why they think that theos got into it. But again. It, it can go either way. There is there is foundational manuscripts for both readings. Okay, so um, what about you, you? You talked about some of the evidence for the Theos rendering. What about the evidence for the the Huios rendering? Well, once again, we can go back to the Church Fathers and see, you know, which version did they and how did they quote it? Well, uh, some of the Church Fathers, such as Irenaeus, Clement, Tertullian quoted the verse with son and not God. And this is especially weighty when one considers that Tertullian argued aggressively for the incarnation of Jesus and is accredited by being one who developed the concept of one God and three persons. If Tertullian had that text that read God, he would surely have used it. But the fact that he didn't sort of suggests that very early on, the son was the correct version in the manuscripts. Okay, so you're telling me that there is evidence on both sides of this one. Okay, and, and okay, now what do you do? Uh, that could be a problem. Well, okay, is it? What, what if we take the translation to be the only begotten God? Let's look at it both ways. If you take it to be the only begotten God, what, what does that actually mean? You know, that, that's a great question. As you mentioned in introducing this, that sometimes different translations have profound effects on what we believe. Other times they can be accommodated and it doesn't make any difference one way or the other. Now, to be sure, that phrase, the only begotten God, is not used anywhere else in the Bible. Okay. This is the only place that you will find it. In contrast, the phrase, the only begotten Son, is used three other times by John, who is the, the, the writer of this. So let's think about begotten, begotten God. Begotten implies a beginning. And so that would seem that a begotten God had a beginning. Now, that's not exactly very difficult to understand because elsewhere in Scripture it talks about the beginning. Uh, for, just for example, very quickly in Revelation 3, 14, it talks about Jesus as the beginning of creation of God. So that also was written by John. So we find some consistency here uh, among John's writings. Okay, interesting. And, and, you know, you also make a note here in some of the notes that we, we, we shared before this podcast about the new international version. Try something kind of unique. Couldn't decide, so it tries to put both of those things in. What? Yes, yes, it tries to have it both ways. Let me read it from, the, from NIV, John 1.18. And you'll see that, you'll see both sides here. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son. Let me pause there. That's completely in accord with most of the manuscripts. Now, the next part, who is himself God, that's not to be found anywhere, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So, who is himself God, that, that is trying to have it both ways, that he's weos and he's theos, putting them both together in one. And, and the danger of that, obviously, is you're adding something. Okay, yes. <laughs> You're, and, and, and folks, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be adding something. So this one's tough. This is a toss-up, but it really, when you look at it, doesn't change much if you do it one way or the other, because you've got the context, like you mentioned, that talks about being begotten. Go ahead. And remember, Rick, earlier on we were talking about one of our objectives is to harmonize all scriptures. So in this case, we can harmonize either Son, Weos, or God, Theos. Both of them can be harmonized with other scriptures without doing 
uh, any injustice to our understanding of the truth. And so, folks, again, sometimes you run into, and we're trying to be as, as open and honest about things as we possibly can. Sometimes it's just not plain and simple, so you do your best to, to put it in scriptural context. Okay, let's put that one on the shelf. Let's go to a different type of questionable translation. You're going to shift gears, look at another verse with a questionable translation. This is a verse that we here at Christian Questions, Jonathan, you and I, have often cited as proof that the gifts of the Spirit come to an end, or came to an end, rather. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, and we're going to read it from the New International Version. And as we read it from this version, notice the strength of the emphasis that this particular version puts on what's being said. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. You hear how it emphasizes love never fails, prophecies will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Knowledge is going to pass away. Well, the following commentary that we're going to go to uh, is based on the meaning of the Greek word, Greek words in this verse, and it challenges that particular interpretation. So listen carefully to how they challenge this. This is from a top 10 list of mistranslated errors of the Bible. This is from John No, N-O-E, and he's written several books about Greek and Hebrew and Bible translation and so forth. Listen to his perspective. NIV poorly translates verse 8 as four declarative statements. Love never fails. You hear the declaration in that? Yes. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Declarative statement. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. (laughs) Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. The RSV translates it like this. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Here's a revealing tidbit. Three... Of these four statements in 1 Corinthians 13.8 are not declarative if you go back to the original translations, Hmm. the original language, nor facts as maintained by the cessationists. In the original Greek language, this verse is comprised of one declarative statement, love never fails, Mm -hmm. and three conditional clauses. Okay, so they're saying one declarative statement, and three conditional clauses. And they're saying the three conditional clauses are better translated differently than the NIV, New International Version. And so, Jonathan, just quickly, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 for a translation that actually supports this. And incidentally, we agree with that, that these are conditional clauses. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, New American Standard Bible. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And and again, just let's go to also, Jonathan, New Jerusalem Bible, same verse, just to give a sense of that. And then, David, let's get, get some of your input on that before we go to the next soundbite and so forth. Love never comes to an end, but if there are prophecies, they will be done away with. If tongues, they will fall silent, and if knowledge, it will be done away with. So we see that in these uh, last two translations that they do indeed translate it, as uh, John No said, 
uh, as conditional statements. And I would agree with them. When you look at the Greek, they are conditional statements. Uh, one of our favorite translations uses the word whether there are prophecies or whether there are tongues. So the same kind of idea. So from a translation standpoint, he, he's absolutely right. Okay, now here's the thing. We see the understanding of this verse in a very different light. So let's play the next soundbite to get the understanding that, that, that John No presents. Okay, this is again top 10 list, mistranslation errors of the Bible. And then we're going to give our commentary as he is giving commentary and take a look at where the differences lie because we agree on the translation. So this, this is one of those things where even if you agree on translation, doesn't mean that everything's settled. You've got to think it through. Let's listen. Here's the exegetical support. The declarative statement that we can all agree on is love never fails. But the other three statements all begin with the Greek participle of conditionality, ite, E-T-I-E. And it does not mean where or as. It means if or whether. Now, King James, King James uses whether and three times, and NAS uses if three times. But the better translation, according to... Uh, B-A-G-D, which is Bauer, Gingrich, and Dangrich, uh, Greek uh, lexicon of the New Testament, recommends but if, and if, and those carry the meaning of may or may not. In other words, they're hypotheticals. Then we have this one statement emphasized by the literary device of conditional hypothetical hyperbolic clauses, not for declarative statements. This construction, Stephen, utilizes three absurdities mm -hmm. to dramatize Paul's main point throughout this passage of 1 Corinthians 13 of the supreme value of love. All right, and David, before I get a, a, an initial comment from you on that, I just want to explain that uh, he goes on to explain in his commentary, uh, in, that, in that interview he was doing, that these absurdities are, you know, if there be, uh, if there be tongues, they shall cease. If there are languages, they're going to go away. And the absurdity is, well, of course language isn't going to go away. You know, if there's knowledge, it will cease. Well, of course, knowledge isn't going to stop. And so he's talking about knowledge, prophecies, and tongues as absurdities, that these things are being made absurd because they're being compared with the fact that love never fails. So what are your thoughts before we go into some context? Well, as you mentioned, this is where we would have a little difference in interpretation. Uh, I really don't see the logic of calling of absurdities. And let's just think for a second. If there are prophecies, well, are there prophecies? Yeah. If there are tongues, are there tongues? Yeah, there is. If knowledge, yeah. Now, he's talking about a certain type of prophecy and tongue and knowledge. And that are those are the spiritual gifts. Prophecies that come from God that are not anywhere else. It's inspiration. You know, so there were prophets in the New Testament as well. Uh, tongues come from God. Uh, knowledge, special knowledge. So this is a very specific category of prophecy tongue knowledge. That is the spiritual gifts. And, and clearly they were. They existed. So Paul is not trying to establish an absurdity here. Rather, he is suggesting that they had a purpose that will come to an end, but love will never come to an end. Okay, so 
how do we know that? Because now this comes down to interpretation. We all agree on what the words mean, but now we're interpreting the application of those words. On one side you have, no, he's using absurdities. And what you're saying, David, is no, he's actually referring to actual spiritual gifts. Why do we adhere to that way of thinking versus the other? Jonathan, what's my favorite word? Context. Let's again go to the context, because it make, in, 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 in my mind, I know in, in, in your minds as well, Jonathan and David, it, it makes it very, very straightforward. The immediate context in 1 Corinthians 13, that was verse 8. Listen carefully to verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So if you notice, in those two verses, it talks about the tongues of men, the gifts of prophecy, and the gift of knowledge. What a coincidence that six verses later, he says, if there be tongues, they shall cease. If there be prophecies, they shall fail. If there be knowledge, it shall cease. It's not a coincidence, folks. It is, he's building a reasoning on what he just said 30 seconds ago. Let's not take something out of context so we can supply a meaning that we're comfortable with. And just to go one step further before, David, before we go back to you with some commentary, let's go to the larger context. That was the immediate context, the, the, literally the few verses before. What about the chapter before? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Jonathan, let's just do verses 8 through 10. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. So you notice again in the larger context, gee, it's just coincidence, no it's not, I'm being sarcastic, how everyone doesn't have every gift, and it's talking about the if in verse 8. That's why the if exists, because some had this gift, some had others, and those same three gifts were mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, as are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Not an absurdity, a contextual clarity. David, go ahead. The Apostle Paul was addressing a problem of thinking in the uh, Corinthian Ecclesia. Uh, they were putting far too much emphasis on these spiritual gifts. And not all of them had it. Not all of them had the same one, just as you showed here in 1 Corinthians 12. So there was a debate of their value. And Paul is trying that to help them understand that, yeah, they have value, but they don't have any value when compared to love. Love is the most important thing. Now, our friends that interpret this otherwise, they, they like to go to verse 10 in verse 13 when it says, but that when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. And they will say, well, with perfect, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's perfect, so when he comes, it'll be done, in the way, out of, uh, be done away with. But in the meantime, it's going to continue through the whole gospel age. And 
there's several problems with that. Number one, what's the point of saying that miraculous gifts will vanish when Jesus comes? Obviously they will. It doesn't impart any new knowledge. Number two, what's the point of saying that we cannot know God's will until God's come, that we're, gonna, we're still going to be uh, somewhat deficient? That makes no sense either. Then he says, after the, what, that which is perfect is come, three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Well, wait a second. When Jesus comes and when the church is gathered, we won't have faith and hope anymore because faith is the assured expectation of things hoped for. Hope is something in the future. When you got it, you don't have faith and hope anymore. Yeah, you have so, reality. Yeah, so this and some other things sort of suggest that what is perfect he's referring to, and we made mention of this earlier in our, in our study today, he's referring to the perfection of knowledge that comes with the creation of the scriptures. When the apostles and disciples passed off the scene, the New Testament was complete and was in the hands. It was perfect. It was just what the church would need for the next 19, 20 centuries afterward. That is the perfection that has come. And it explains everything if we look at it that way. Okay, so it really is, there's really some great, great clarity here. David, we are pretty much out of time. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, and that's it. And I'm timing you on this, brother. Okay, 30 seconds just to wrap up your thinking for today's episode. Well, we covered several different areas. We covered spurious scriptures, those scriptures that do not belong in the in the Bible at all. Uh, then we covered some areas where, where scriptures were mistranslated, and we tried to understand what the uh, what the translation should be. And the key element here that you emphasized several times is our faith is exegetical. That's what John know. You notice that he used that word, yes. exegesis. It has to be based upon what the manuscript evidence has. And we are very blessed that we have many, many manuscripts. Uh, thirdly, uh, sometimes it's very plain what it should be. Other times it's not so plain. So it requires a little bit more investigation, comparing scripture with scripture to try to make everything harmonious. And lastly, Again, there's going to be some times where we agree on a translation, but we don't agree on an inter interpretation. And that's where you have to look at context and, again, bring other factors in to try to understand it. David, thanks so much. You know, folks, this is such an important study to do together with us. And part three is coming next week. And, and we want to understand, though, that we want to, to believe in the Word of God as God intended the Word of God to be not as we may have manufactured it to be or as we would like it to be, but as the ancient writings showed us it should be. And that's how you build your scriptural and Christian faith. And that's how you build on God's truth, his prophecies, his, his, his plan, his kingdom. That's what we're after with this series. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions and iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, coming up next week, it's going to be part three. We're going to talk about some more mistranslations. We're going to talk about a very unique case of two different translations and both look exactly right. And then we're going to talk about something that most of us don't even know about. That's numerology of Scripture and how that fits in. You don't want to miss next week. So again, David, thank you so much. And folks, this is how we become true students of Scripture and true followers of Jesus. We'll talk to you next week.